1982, a group of five sailors had quite a life-changing experience. They're taking a 58-foot yacht on a 1,300-mile trip from Maine to Florida. Around the second night, they encountered a tropical storm. 30-foot waves crashed against the boat, and it capsized the vessel. They plunged into the water, but just in time, they were able to inflate an 11-foot dinghy that they could get on top of. But within minutes, they already started feeling bumps on the bottom of the raft and found they were being circled already by what seemed like were hundreds of sharks. They circled them for days and even rammed their little boat at times. But the real threat was dehydration. Because after several days, severe dehydration set in, and two of the crew members started drinking the salt water, which only made things worse. And that's when they started hallucinating. One thought he saw land and jumped in the water. Another said he needed to get something from the convenience store and jumped in the water. And both were immediately taken by the sharks. Now, days later, they were finally rescued by a Russian cargo ship. But after spending about a week living in constant fear and terror and just suffering, the survivors were never the same. One surviving crew member went on to say that the ordeal left him changed forever. It just can't go back to living like he used to. He's always in a state of survival, he feels like. It's impossible to live the way you did before is what he said. And yeah, I would say that qualifies as a life-changing experience. There are some life events, circumstances that happen to us that are so extraordinary, it leaves us changed, profoundly changed. Our personality might change. Our behavior might change. Life events have a way of changing us. But also such life-changing experiences pale in comparison next to one, namely salvation. Because salvation is not just an external change. This is an internal change of your your very nature. Salvation is not just something that happens to you. It's it's a radical change of who you are when it it really happens. Jesus himself likened it to a new birth. And that's how extreme it is. It's like being born a second time. Don't think of salvation like a snake shedding its skin where it's, it's the same thing. It's just renewed. Think of it more like the metamorphosis where the caterpillar turns into the butterfly. It's it's new altogether. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. That's a life-changing experience. When you come to true saving faith in Christ, your fundamental nature changes, your identity changes. You go from being dead to alive, lost to found, enslaved to free, enemy to friend, rebel to disciple. Naturally, this massive change in your identity and who you are should result in massive changes in how you live, especially how you relate to others. And salvation should, of course, drastically change how you relate to God. Before, you were like, like a wild horse refusing to be broken, and you wouldn't have God telling you what to do or ruling your life. You would not recognize Christ as Lord. But you come to salvation, you come to bow to Christ's lordship. You've come to see him for who he really is. He's the Savior, the only Savior. He's become your only hope for what you need, forgiveness. And you've come to love him and trust him. And this just makes you an incredibly thankful person. You're no longer going around life so incredibly angry or bitter or entitled. You're just 
perpetually thankful that he found you, he saved you, he had mercy on you. It makes you a true worshiper. And becoming a new creature in Christ, it also massively changes your relationship with others. You don't see other people the same way you did before. Before you come to Christ, you subscribe to the the typical dog-eat-dog mentality of the world. You would happily use others to get ahead. You'd only really do good for others if they would do something good in return. You're always looking out for number one. That made you so easily offended, though, and easily riled up. Because when you're living as the God of your own universe, you don't like it when others refuse to bow down to your will. And so you're often impatient with others, aggravated, maybe even hateful. But coming to Christ, that should be different now. And being changed by God's grace, a pity and a compassion forms in your heart for those in the world. You see them as, as they are, as you once were, and they're still just enslaved to sin. They're spiritually blind. They're, they're dead without hope. You're no different and you're really no better. It's just that you found God's mercy and were changed. But receiving that mercy leads you to extend mercy to others. Produces a, a tolerance in your heart for the lost, a love even where you just want them to, to find the same mercy you found and to be changed. And so I would trust and hope that if you're here today as, as a Christian, you've, you've experienced some of these changes. The new birth, it's not a small thing. It shouldn't go unnoticed in your life. It, it's not even a life-changing experience. It's an eternal life-changing experience. And like that shark survivor said a hundred times over, it, it should be impossible to live the way you did before when you come to Christ. And it is this very truth we find stressed in the second half of the Beatitudes, which is our subject for this morning. And so we're going to turn yet again to Matthew chapter 5. So if you have, if you're, have your Bible with you, or grab a pew Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue this quest to go through these Beatitudes, understand what it means to be blessed, divinely favored, approved by God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us. He opens this sermon with what are known as the Beatitudes, verses 3 through 12. It's a series of pronouncements of divine blessing on his disciples. And he shares the characteristics of those who belong to his kingdom. And so far, we've already preached through the first four, found in verses 3 through 6. It's where Christ, Christ says, blessed are the poor in spirit, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we found that these first four Beatitudes at their core relate the experience of salvation. They describe the character of one who is entering the kingdom. The poor in spirit, that's those who recognize their sin, they see their spiritual bankruptcy before God and are broken by it. That leads them to mourn and grieve over their sin, over their transgressions, all the, the suffering has brought upon them. In turn, they're made meek. They realize they can't justify themselves. Their rebellious spirit is broken and replaced with a dependent spirit. 
And now seeing Christ, they come to desperately need him. They, they hunger, they thirst for what only he can provide, his righteousness. And so these four Beatitudes effectively lead a person to a repentant faith in Christ. And like Jesus says, these are the ones who shall be satisfied. They will inherit the earth. They will be comforted. To them belongs the kingdom of heaven. Now, after this, Jesus adds four more Beatitudes, but there's a shift with the second half. Because now Jesus turns his attention to the character of those already in the kingdom. Now he's talking about those who've already been transformed by this salvation. And he relates here some of the changes that should come about in their lives. They should live differently and relate to others differently. And that really is the the clear emphasis of the second four Beatitudes, largely on how we live, how we relate to others. And in a way, the second four Beatitudes parallel the first four. You know, those poor in spirit, broken over their sins. They know all too well that God's mercy is their only hope. And so now in turn, they're ready to show mercy to others. Verse 7. Those who mourn over their sins know all the ruin and suffering sin brings in life. And they're ready now to, in turn, be pure in heart. Verse 8. Those who've been made meek, they know that faith with God is is the only way to find peace from God. And in turn, they're now ready to to pursue peace with others. Verse 9. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they now want to see the Lord's righteousness reflected in their lives. And so now in turn, they're ready to to suffer for the sake of that righteousness if they must. Verse 10. Things change when you come to Christ. Salvation is an eternal, life-changing experience, and it becomes impossible to live the way you did before. This morning, we're going to enter the second half of these Beatitudes and start exploring what that should look like. We begin today with verse 7, the fifth Beatitude. And so far, we've seen how blessed are the poor, blessed are the grieving, blessed are the meek, blessed are the hungry. And today we carry on, well, this is number five, blessed are the merciful. Fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. Coming to Christ, coming to his kingdom should change how you live, how you relate to others. And right off the bat, we find one of the the largest changes that should take place is in relation to your mercy. Verse seven, Christ says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It is simple enough, but we're going to break this beatitude down a bit under five points. Let's start with, first, the meaning of mercy. Just to clarify, make sure we know what we're talking about, the meaning of mercy. Because obviously, the meaning of this fifth beatitude is, is entirely anchored to the meaning of this word, merciful. And the term in Greek refers to mercy or compassion, but not in the sentimental sense. This is not merely the emotion of sympathy. Sympathy and mercy are quite related, where sympathy is mercy without action. Sympathy is is a feeling of pity or sorrow for someone else's suffering. A couple years ago, the the small mountain town of Paradise was wiped off the map by a wildfire. I remember seeing video of houses that were literally reduced to ash 
The family shows up, they come back to the home, all they find is the concrete foundation and maybe the brick chimney, and that's it. Just imagine losing every single one of your possessions overnight. And just that thought should evoke from you a pity, a feeling of sorrow for someone else's loss. But it's just that. It's just a feeling. Mercy is where you you feel that feeling. You feel that pity for someone, and then you do something about it. That's mercy. This term for mercy refers to compassion in action. This is sympathy in action. Great or small, you're just compelled to do something to relieve someone else's suffering. That is mercy. That's the meaning of mercy. But secondly, let's look at the model of mercy. This notion of mercy is itself rooted in God's character. It's not surprising to find that this characteristic of the kingdom of heaven is found first in the God of heaven. And Ephesians 5.1 tells us as beloved children to be imitators of God. So we start here. Let's look at God's mercy. And God, throughout the Old Testament, he's not described as merely sympathetic. He's described as merciful. And that's because his compassion moves him to rescue the helpless, to lift the needy. If you recall in Exodus 34, God causes his glory to pass by Moses, and then God reveals himself. He he declares his nature. Remember what he says to Moses, Exodus 34, 6. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Notice the first thing God says about himself is that he's compassionate. It's an equivalent Hebrew word. He's merciful. And it was this mercy that moved him to act on behalf of his people. And so seeing Israel, for example, suffer torment in Egypt as slaves, it was God's mercy that moved him to lead them out in the Exodus. Seeing his people later oppressed by foreign powers... It was his mercy that moved him to raise up judges to deliver them. Look, even seeing the wicked, godless Ninevites enslaved by their own sin, it was mercy that moved God to send Jonah to them to preach repentance. It would do all these people no good if God saw their plight and their suffering and felt bad, but then did nothing about it. But God demonstrates true mercy with his action. We know, of course, that the greatest demonstration of God's mercy was in the sending of his son, Christ, to pave the way for our eternal exodus and salvation. It's one thing for God to see his people suffering in Egypt. It's another to see his people enslaved to sin, destined to suffer eternally. God sees and he knows the ruinous effects of sin on this world. He sees how sin has broken this creation, led to suffering and sickness and calamity and death. And he's moved to relieve much suffering on this world by common grace. But the greater effect of sin is is eternal death, God's own judgment. And for those who are called by his name, God has moved to a greater mercy to deliver them from their eternal suffering by his special grace. More you read the Bible, you might wonder, 
how can God show mercy to sinners, those who are guilty? There seems to be a conflict between the love and justice of God, and in a sense there is, between God's desire to show mercy, let people go, versus his requirement to judge the guilty, being a perfectly just judge. And that same tension is reflected in Exodus 34, 7. It's what God also said to Moses when he caused his glory to pass by. He said right after, after declaring his mercy, he said he's the God who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Like, well, which is it? Are you going to punish the guilty or forgive them? That there seems to be a tension here. And imagine a, a judge presiding over a court, and he learns that the next defendant in the next case is his own son. And he's been convicted of drunk driving, even injured an innocent bystander. So naturally, the judge, the father, feels compassion for his son. He loves him. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to him. He, he wants to show him mercy. He wishes he could just, just let him go. But he can't. The demands of the law require him to sentence him to jail. I mean, justice must be served if he's a just judge. You can't even make an exception for the son of the judge. That would be unjust. He can't just let the guilty go free. That is the exact same tension God feels towards his people. You can't just let them go. But God devised a way to resolve this tension himself. He did that by sending his own son, God the Son, Christ Jesus, the innocent, the pure and perfect one, to be our substitute sacrifice, to take our judgment, our penalty, our sentence for us. And that's what Jesus was doing on the cross. He was dying for our sins. He was paying the penalty in our place that we might be justly forgiven. Because if God just lets us go free, that's it's unjust. We were guilty. But in Christ willingly, voluntarily paying our penalty, we can now go free because justice is still served. It's on the cross that the love of God and the justice of God met. And this is what enables us to go free. And really, we don't just go free. We were even granted eternal life. And it was God's mercy that was behind this whole plan of salvation. God saw his people entrapped in sin, destined for wrath. He was moved to mercy. His justice held back his mercy. All of his mercy was dammed up by his justice, but the cross broke that dam. God's justice was satisfied in the offering of his son. This is what enables the floodgates God's mercy to to break open for us. So now if you go to the risen Christ by faith, you can be saved from the wrath to come. And that is what you must do. And when you do that, all you have is God's mercy to think. You did not earn, deserve, or merit this gift of salvation. It's just that. It's it's a gift, a, a gift of his grace. Let me read Ephesians 2, 1 through 6 for you. Well known. First three verses show us who we were before we received this gift. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was us. That's our former condition. That's who we were before we received mercy. And there's nothing we could do to change this. We were by nature children of wrath. That's our destiny. We can't change our own nature. But God can. Verse 4, the next verse says, But God, being rich in mercy. He's not stingy in mercy. He's rich in mercy. It says, Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. It says, by grace, you've been saved. He made us alive by his mercy. There's so many different aspects of God's grace gift of salvation. But just know that, that the locomotive at the head of this train, pulling the whole thing, was his mercy. His, his love and compassion for our fallen estate moved him to not just feel bad for us, but to deliver us, to send his son to deliver us. And so now, if you've received this mercy, for one, you should spend the rest of your days thanking God for his mercy. And two, you should spend the rest of your days being merciful to others in the same way. And that's what this fifth beatitude is all about. I mean, Jesus in Luke 6.36, he straight up tells us, he says, be merciful as your father is merciful. Okay, enough said. We're, we're no longer children of wrath. We are now children of God. And so that means we are to exemplify his mercy in our lives. So you look at verse 7 when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. There's really no doubt that, that God's model of mercy is behind that, that undergirds that. We are to be merciful as our heavenly father is merciful. Now, before we talk more about what this mercy might look like today in action, I want us to consider Christ himself, take it a little further, because Jesus shows us, above all, what divine mercy looks like on earth. That Christ really manifests God's mercy in human relationships. What it looks like to be merciful in human relationships. We need to see that. So thirdly, let's consider the manifestation of mercy. The manifestation of mercy. Hebrews 2, 17 says that Jesus is our merciful high priest. And his mercy is especially highlighted in Matthew's gospel. And Christ, he is a sympathetic savior, but it goes beyond just feeling sympathy for his people. Even while he was on earth, he was moved to action. His compassion for the suffering led him to do something about it. You see over in Matthew 9, 35 and 36, it says Jesus was going throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, <clears throat> every kind of sickness. It says seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He's going from town to town. He sees example after example of people broken by sin in this world. These people were, in a word, lost. And Christ, the good shepherd, came to find them and to bind them up. 
Matthew 14, 14, it says later that he went ashore. He saw a large crowd. He felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And Jesus was moved to alleviate the effects of the curse on these people. And look, we know he did this ultimately on the cross to deliver us from eternal death. But don't forget that on earth, Jesus did not shy away from delivering people from the physical effects of the fall, from alleviating their their earthly suffering. He healed the sick. Right after this in Matthew 14, he feeds the 5,000. He feeds the hungry. He's concerned for their, their earthly needs as well. Another highlight of Christ's mercy is found in Matthew 20, 29 through 34. It says they were leaving Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem to the cross. It says a large crowd followed him. And two blind men were sitting by the road. Hearing that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have, have mercy on us, son of David. And the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Look how merciless this crowd is, that they would tell these men to be quiet. These two men were blind. They had no real hope of actually like literally following Jesus, that they're blind. Their only hope to encounter him is if he happens to pass by on the road they're parked at. And when that day finally comes, There's nothing going to stop them from crying out to him because they were so desperate for for mercy. And so verse 32 says, Jesus stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And verse 34 says, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. There's really few greater examples, I think, of how the curse has has wrecked this world than blindness. It's hard to imagine just how difficult daily life was for these two men. How much suffering they endured from being blind, especially in the ancient world. Jesus saw them. He was moved to compassion. He felt this, this pity for them. But he did something about it. He touched them. He healed them. Enabled them to literally follow him. Now, we can't do this. We can't perform miracles like this. We can't multiply bread. We can't cure the blind. But that's not the issue. It's the question of what what can you do? Mercy is simply measured by action. What, What can you do? What can you give? You and I do not have the means to alleviate all human suffering on the earth. We can't even come close. But again, that's not the question. It's just what can you do? The merciful are those who do something, anything, just to lift the needs of those suffering around them in whatever way. And this is the mercy to which we're called here in this fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, those whose compassion leads them to action, imitating God, following Jesus. And really, as a valuable foil to consider, you need to know every time Jesus showed compassion on the needy, he was revealing just how unmerciful the religious leaders were. The scribes, Pharisees, Levites, priests, everybody else knew they're not like this. They are not like Jesus. They don't stop for the person on the road. They were not known for their mercy. 
the religious leaders of the day, that the holy men were, were known for being proud, self-righteous, unforgiving, judgmental. Their response to human suffering was just criticism. Like, well, what did you do to get yourself in this situation? You got yourself in this mess, you can get yourself out. Like, I'll, I'll come help you, but like, what's in it for me? They created a works, uh, or rather a system of works righteousness. It's really just of self-righteousness. And there, there was little room for mercy in this system. They were wealthy and powerful because they earned it. They deserved it. They're better. And the poor and needy aren't. That's just their fault. But Jesus confronted these leaders both on their hypocrisy and their mercilessness all the time. The only way these religious leaders would do good to others is if there's something in it for them. You know, kind of like you scratch my back, I'll, I'll scratch yours. So I'll help you in your suffering, but you know, tell me first what you'll do for me in return. But that's not mercy. That's self-serving. Mercy is self-giving. That's like the person who donates a lot to charity, but that the real motive was to get a tax write-off. Like, okay, that's not mercy, though. It's a nice gift, but it's not mercy. Or it's like the politician who volunteers at a soup kitchen for 10 minutes on Thanksgiving for a photo op. Like, that's, that's not mercy. If you look down to Matthew 5.43, later in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.43, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He's teaching there directly against the religious leaders. And the second part of that saying didn't come from God's law, you know, the hate your enemy part. That came from their tradition. And the thing is, they they came to put just about everybody in the category of enemy, not neighbor. Like, almost nobody was their neighbor, everyone else just their enemy. But Christ says, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He adds, verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's just making the point that the wicked, they'll do good to others as long as there's something in it for them. But true love and true mercy serves others and even sacrifices self for others And expects nothing in return. And so Jesus later outright condemns the mercilessness of the religious leaders. That's Matthew 23, verse 23, a well-known verse. It's the opposite of a beatitude. It's a cursing. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So Jesus doesn't pronounce them blessed, but cursed. Because the inverse of this fifth beatitude is likewise true. Cursed are the merciless. They shall not receive mercy. And God's judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Rather, God's people are called to show true mercy. We've learned it's, it's not just a feeling. It's an action. It's not feigned, but real. It's not self-serving, but self-giving. It's not selfish, but selfless. It's compassion and action designed to lift the needy from their affliction. 
Now, we're almost ready to consider mercy today, but I want to add one more little point in here. Number four, the mirror of mercy. The mirror of mercy. I'll explain that. Look back at verse seven. The blessed are the merciful. He says, for they shall receive mercy. At first glance, it might seem that the way to get God's mercy is to show mercy to others. Like show mercy to others, earn God's mercy. But that's not quite right and not what Jesus means. I mean, first, you can't earn mercy. If you could, it by definition wouldn't be mercy. It would be a reward. Already, though, we've seen how God's mercy comes to us undeserved, unearned. It's a free gift. By grace, you have been saved. But you might notice Beatitudes numbers two through seven, everything but the first and the last, they're all in the future tense. The rewards of Beatitudes two through seven are in the future tense, meaning like it says, they shall be comforted. They shall inherit the earth. They shall see God. Same thing here. They shall receive mercy. Still in the future tense. And that's because while we, we taste all these blessings right now, Jesus has in mind a finality to them all. An eschatological fulfillment for God's people. We might be blessed right now. We are, but when Christ returns, we will have all these blessings in full. And so, it's the same with this mercy. There is an eschatological, or meaning end of times, dimension to it. It really looks forward to the, the final mercy when God's people are, are finally delivered from that great white throne judgment. And once again, it's not like we can earn that future mercy by being merciful to others. Rather, the one who is merciful to others shows that he or she has received mercy. And, and will be spared from the wrath to come. You don't earn mercy by showing mercy, but rather, as John Stott says, quote, we cannot receive the mercy of God unless we repent. And we cannot claim to have repented of our sins if we are unmerciful toward the sins of others, end quote. So in other, ways, in other words, how you regard the sins of others and how you treat fellow sinners it's one of the clearest mirrors into the state of your soul. Like, is salvation found there? Is, is true saving faith found in there? Have you been transformed by God's mercy? Well, are you merciful? Do you show mercy to others? It's going to reflect the state of your soul. And again, it was by this mirror that the religious leaders stood condemned, measured by the mercy they showed their fellow sinners, it was quite clear they had not received God's saving mercy. They were still lost. As James says, James 2.13, judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. But he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. You and I must take this into account and examine ourselves. You've already seen a, a bit of a picture of mercy in God and, and Christ incarnate. And so does, does such compassion in action come out of you? What does the mirror of mercy say about you? Would it indicate you're among those who've received God's mercy? Or is your heart found cold and indifferent toward the needy around you? Do you regard your fellow sinner with just judgment and contempt? Beware and take heed, because cursed are the merciless, only 
Blessed are the merciful. And now I think it's time we, we consider in greater detail just what this mercy should look like today. So I finish with number five, the measure of mercy. The measure of mercy. And playing off the model of mercy we found in God and in Christ Jesus, I think we can pin down that the two main ways our mercy can be measured. You read the Beatitudes, Jesus does not stop and explain himself. He doesn't give illustrations or, or examples. That would totally take away the force of his teaching. No, but at the same time, it, it's not hard looking to the teaching of Jesus elsewhere to find the measure of mercy. So let me give you the first main category of, of showing mercy. It's just giving help to the needy. It's pretty straightforward, giving help to the needy. And the paramount passage on this is Luke 10. Go ahead and turn there. Luke 10, 30 through 37. It's the parable of the good Samaritan. Luke 10, verse 30. This was teaching Jesus gave in response to a scribe, a lawyer, who was trying to justify himself. And he actually believed he fulfilled the second greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. The problem was he he had narrowly defined neighbor to be people just like him. But Christ is going to define neighbor to be anyone in need. Luke 10.30, Jesus says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. All right, so there's no doubt that this is a person in need. He's in life or death need. Verse 31 says, by chance, a priest was going down the same road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Verse 32, likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Why didn't they stop? This is a priest. This is a Levite. These are like the holy men of God, right? And clearly this man was in life or death need, but they didn't want to be bothered. Worse yet, and Christ is exposing, it's not just they were too busy. It's just their outright mercilessness. They had no mercy. They were not moved to pity for this man, and certainly not to the degree they would do something about it. There is nothing in it for the priest and the Levite to help this man. There's nothing in it for anyone to help this man. There's only cost, expense, giving time, maybe even money, going out of your way to help this person. Nothing in it for them. It's best not to be bothered. Let's just pass by on the other side. But, verse 33, where Christ says, But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And Jesus makes the hero of the story Samaritan. That was one of the main people groups that the Jews excluded from the category of neighbor. They are not neighbors. They are enemies. But this man, this Samaritan, proved to be a true neighbor and to be a man of mercy. It says he felt compassion. He he saw this man beaten, stripped, left for dead on the side of the road and felt bad. And he was moved to do something about it. So his mercy turned, it turned into mercy when it turned into action. Verse 34 
It says, and came up to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine upon them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. He went above and beyond. He didn't even have to go this far. It would have been merciful if he just bandaged up his wounds. But his deep compassion compelled him to go all the way to care for this man's true need. And so now for the obvious question, it doesn't get more obvious. Verse 36, Christ asked the crowd, he said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. It's clear. It's obvious. This is what it looks like to show mercy. And so you just have to ask yourself the hard question. What would you do? What, what do you do? Do you stop for the, the bruised, the broken, the, the needy people of the world around you? Or do you pass by on the other side? Do you look for excuses not to help people in need? Do you let the desire to not be inconvenienced just reign supreme in your life? You'll do anything so long as it doesn't inconvenience you. you know, I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson regarding the priest and Levite. He says, they refuse to die to their own plans and to fit in with the providence of God in their lives. End quote. You know, God's providence brought this need literally in their path. But they chose to dodge it because they're self-willed. But for those of us who are in Christ, we, we can't dodge it. We're compelled to go through with it, to, to die to self and let our plans fall by the wayside that we might just imitate God and show mercy. This can take countless forms today. It, it could be a moment when you, you get a call from a relative. They just learned a loved one has passed away. They're, they're just mourning. They really just need you to be a, like a shoulder to cry on. That's it. They need to, to vent and to cry and talk. They just need you to listen. You're thinking, I, I don't have, this could take an hour. I don't have time for this. I don't really want to do this. What are you going to do there? Are you going to show mercy? Are going to be there for their time of need? It could also be the, the all too common situation of seeing a, a homeless person begging for food. It is very easy to justify passing by and and ignoring them entirely. You could easily assume, like, you know, probably because of drug addiction, that they invited this suffering on themselves. That might even be true. But you're still seeing a fellow human being trapped in sin and its consequences. And in this just moment, they just need food. So will you show mercy and, and feed them? And who knows, it, it might even lead to an opportunity to show greater mercy and share the gospel with them. That's the spiritual dimension of mercy. It's not only physical. There's a, a spiritual component. Mercy is all about alleviating the needs of others around you as you're able. There's no greater need, though, than, than salvation. We look around, we see people in the world just like us, except before we received God's transforming mercy. We see them. They don't know better. They're still spiritually blind and dead. Their only hope to alleviate that need is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so mercy is not just feeling bad for the loss. It's, it's doing something about it. We're actually called to do something about it, to, to just tell them 
the good news of Christ and his gospel. So again, will you show mercy? It's hard in all of its forms. It takes self-sacrifice, the self-serving, the self-willed. They won't go there. But for those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, who came first, he laid down his life for us first. We are called and compelled to lay down our lives for others, whatever form it might take, to show mercy. Now, let me give you quickly here that the second main category of showing mercy, giving forgiveness to the guilty. Now, first, you give help to the needy. Second, you give forgiveness to the guilty. Again, mercy is all about giving to those in need. Sometimes the need is physical, and you might give physical. Other times it's spiritual. And in one dimension, we're called to show mercy by giving forgiveness to someone who's offended us. The text for this is a no-brainer, Matthew 18. Go ahead and turn now to Matthew 18, at 23 through 25. Matthew 18, 23, this, this one pretty much explains itself. I'm going to start reading Matthew 18, verse 23. Christ said, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. How much is 10,000 talents? It's, it's roughly equivalent to 60 million days wages. So just work. Every day for 60 million days and you have 10,000 talents. But since he did not have the means to repay, that's pretty obvious. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all he had and repayment to be made. At least recoup some of his losses. Verse 26 says, so the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me. I'll repay you everything. Verse 27, the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. The Lord was driven to mercy and just forgave him. He didn't try and set up a repayment plan. He didn't hold it over his head. He just released him of all of the debt. But verse 28 says, that slave went out, found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. That's just a hundred days wages. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me. I'll repay you. Verse 30 says, but he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. Even a child can tell this is wrong. This is not right. Just the level of hypocritical mercilessness after this guy was just forgiven like this infinite debt to not forgive someone of a, a vastly smaller debt. This, is, this can't stand. And it doesn't. Verse 31. So, so when his fellow slaves saw what, he had, what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And then Christ says in verse 35, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. 
The lesson again is obvious. Verse 33. For those of you who have received the greatest gift, talking eternal mercy from God the judge, should you not also now show mercy to others in the same way? Yes. Yes, you should. All the time. And Jesus relates that here to forgiving others. That showing of mercy here is in the form of forgiving others. Don't forget, it was Peter's question that prompted this parable. Back in verse 21, Peter asked, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Like, because that's a lot, like seven times. But Christ basically says, no, not seven times, every time. Release them of their every debt, just like the Lord released you of your every debt. You can choose to hold on to someone's offenses against you. And bitterness, you refuse to entrust it to the Lord. That's like swallowing poison. And over time, it can start to call into question whether you have received mercy. You're unwilling to let someone go. But God's mercy should change you. It should make you increasingly merciful. We're not perfectly merciful, but you should becoming increasingly merciful. And again, as you walk through the first four Beatitudes... You enter Christ's kingdom, it completely changes how you relate to others, especially in regards to sin. It just goes to show for all these measures of mercy, they're impossible to give unless you first have encountered and received and been made new by God's mercy. That's the starting point. You must have had received God's mercy. It will change you. But then... You have to continually live in light of God's mercy. These are truths we need to to wash over our mind every day to remind us who we are. And the Spirit then leads us to now show mercy to others. We have to continually call to mind, we're that slave. We were spared of this eternal debt. We were saved. How can we not show mercy to others? Of course we will. I hope this is you. I hope you, you feel sympathy in your heart for the sick, the suffering, the lost. Your heart goes out to them, but what will you do about it? That is mercy. This is one of those areas where all of us must excel still more. So much of this mercy just stems from thinking differently about others. Remember how the Lord Jesus had compassion on those blind men Likewise, we we must be moved to compassion for the spiritually blind all around us. 2 Timothy 2.26 even says for the lost that they've been ensnared by the devil. They're being held captive by him to do his will. So, I mean, look, they're still accountable for their sins. But in a sense, it's, it's like Jesus said of the people crucifying him. He said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. They're still accountable, but in a sense, they they don't even know what they're doing. They're spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. So, just think of the person who's on the completely opposite end of the political spectrum. Think of the person who has the exact opposite views on COVID and the vaccine than you. Think of the person who has diametrically opposed views on LGBT stuff. Such people may rile you up to no end. They may evoke from you a a vicious mercilessness. And look, God will judge in the end. He will judge justly in the end according to his sovereign will. We allow him to, to sort out his mercy and his justice to all in the end. That's his place. 
Our place is not to be wrathful as our father is wrathful. That's his place. He tells us our place is to be merciful as our father is merciful. So even for those who are so different from us, maybe even genuine enemies, Christ said we are to love for them, pray for them, and a, a genuine compassion should come over us for them. Because we recall, why are they that way? In reality, it's because they're ensnared. They're being held captive, spiritually blind. They're spiritually dead. They've not received God's mercy like us. And apart from that, we'd be just like them. And so in turn, we must show mercy even to them. Physically, we can act to lift the suffering of the need, the needy all around us, no matter what they believe or who they are. We can just alleviate human suffering. And then spiritually, we must minister the gospel to the lost world around us. That's, that's the only hope that they might be freed from their eternal suffering. And when God's people put such mercy on display, it's a powerful witness, a powerful force. It's what can God do through a merciful people? And so let yourself be stretched in your mercy. Let your heart grow in its capacity to feel the sorrows of the broken. And let those feelings then move to your hands, your feet, your lips, that you, you do something about it. God's mercies never fail. They're new every morning. And so may that be true of us as well. That we might enter into God's blessing. For as Christ said, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy. Let's pray to the God of all mercy. Our good Father in heaven, we exalt you. After this time in your word, as we are reminded of, of you, our God, the God of all mercy, these mercies never end. They never cease. They are new every morning. We are a people saved, bought, uh, spared by your mercy and your mercy alone. We can't boast. We can't say anything. We, we deserve to be cast out from your kingdom forever. But we can remember and first exalt you for just your mercy, your character, you show a compassion on the lost and you moved, you're moved to send Christ to die for us, to actually give us mercy in the Savior. Thank you for that greatest gift. And for those who've not encountered it, may you give them mercy right now. Open their eyes and, and melt their hearts. Whatever pride remains to uh, turn away from you, to not uh, submit to the Lord. May you break them down, but give them the, the joy of being found. Once was lost, but now I'm found. Like we sang this morning. And for those of us who have received your mercy, Lord, we, we, we pray you continue to work in us to show mercy to others. All of us can be cold-hearted at times. We can fall back to our old ways, but may the Spirit continue to work in us to remind us we are a people bought with the price. We're to glorify God with our lives, with our bodies. And that, so often that involves taking action to just help others around us. May we not turn a cold heart to those who need physically around us and especially spiritually. May we be men and women of the gospel. We see a lost and dying world, a hopeless and broken world. We have the good news and the hope. Will mercy compel us to not pass by on the other side, but go out of our way, accept inconvenience, and share the, the mercy of Christ. So convict us, work in us, and we pray for your blessing as we are merciful, as our Father is merciful. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.